Welcome to the Campion College podcast, the official home for audio recordings of college events, guest talks, public lectures, interviews, conferences, and more. Join us now for a formal hall address from Mr. Gray Connolly, with an introduction from our senior residential tutor, Ms. Sophie Dignan. Graham Alfred Frederick Gray Connolly is a barrister and writer in Sydney, Australia. Gray has a broad public law and commercial law practice, including constitutional law, energy and resources law, and admiralty and shipping law. In particular, Gray has advised the Australian Government on national security law and public law matters. Gray also lectures in Australian constitutional law at Sydney University. He is the examiner in constitutional law for the Legal Profession Admission Board, and Gray also serves part-time as a senior member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Gray served previously as a Naval Intelligence Officer in the Royal Australian Navy in, South, in the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea, the Gulf of Oman, the Persian Gulf, East Timor and the Middle East, including service in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Gray writes on what interests him at his blog, Strategy Council. Gray's Twitter is at Gray Connolly. Please note that all of Gray's opinions are his opinions only and not those of any Australian government entity. Welcome, Mr Connolly. Good evening, and thank you for having me here to Campion College to speak. And it's wonderful to be speaking to you in this new hall. Uh, I feel greatly honoured to be here as the first speaker. Uh, I'm greatly honoured by the opportunity to speak to you all here in this magnificent new facility. I am speaking to you tonight about uh, the voice to Parliament and to the Constitution and uh, the issues that surround the voice. I have tried to make this as clear as I possibly can and hopefully as even-handed as I can. Um, so I, I have given out uh, some materials uh, that will help uh, you to follow along with what I'm saying. But as I said, I'm trying to reduce this as much as I can to, to plain English. I lecture in constitutional law and obviously practice in it, and I have a very, very strong belief that the Constitution belongs to everyone. It was, it was written in a sparse, plain, in some respects, very Australian English in the late 19th century so that lay people could understand the basic law under which uh, their country came together and federated and under which they were governed. And so insofar as it is, for its time really for our time as well, a very plain English document, it should be taught and explained in a very straightforward way. I do not mean that you should understand it in a simplified or simple way because constitutions are not simple, but they can be straightforward. Um, our constitution is very interesting. Um, our constitution, as I point out in the document to hand, a lot, of, a lot of what you need to know about our constitution and really to understand the voice you really have to understand the constitution into which the voice is meant to be inserted as an alteration. 
So probably the best way to understand this, if you can, is with, say, a copy of the Constitution or just what I have provided to you. But you can see a lot of what you need to understand about the Australian Constitution from, the, from its preamble. That is, from the opening statements at the very beginning of the Constitution. It's very important to note, our Constitution begins its life as an act of the Imperial Parliament. Australia is not born out of a revolution. It's born out of the federation of separate British colonies that inhabit the Australian continent. So the only way they could come together and essentially fuse to become a new nation is by the Imperial Parliament in Westminster passing an Act of Parliament to enable that to happen. And it's very important to note that. That's how sort of uh, Canada, New Zealand and Australia all come into existence. Unlike the Americans, there's no revolution, there's no severance, there's no breakage with the Crown. Instead, there is a new entity that comes into existence through the mechanism of the Parliament. And so the Australian Constitution is contained in the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act. And so that, that, that Act is contained in a bill that goes through the Parliament in 1900. And at the very beginning, there's an interesting statement in the preamble, and I've, I've set it out in the materials we have before it. And it tells you a lot about Australia in just the preamble, because it, st it starts with, whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania... You'll notice two things. One is that the, there is no undifferentiated people of Australia. There are peoples of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania. So that idea of they're all having a colonial existence that is coming together. You'll also notice that Western Australia is not there. Western Australia votes to join the Australian Federation after the bill comes through. And it's very important to note, Western Australia, and I must make clear, I love Western Australia, it's one of my favourite parts of Australia, uh, Fremantle is one of my favourite places um, in the world. Um, it's a great, if you're in the Navy, it's a great run ashore, is Fremantle. But you notice Western Australia comes in late. Western Australia has always been a part of Australia that has had sometimes its own independent ideas about its place in the Federation. Um, so you'll notice that. You'll also notice, following on from there, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. It's very important to note, the Australian Constitution expressly mentions God. I can safely say, as I'm here at Campion College, Catholic institution, largely that was the work of Catholics. That was the price of Catholics for federation is that God must be in the Constitution. If you spoke English and you were Catholic, you're aware of how difficult it had been as a Catholic, particularly, say, in the American Republic, which had no overt references to God, and also you're aware of the history of, of Catholics under the French Revolution and other sort of modernising influences. You wanted to make sure that your basic law had up front God. So God is in the Constitution. To be fair, Protestants at the time separated, supported this as well. So this was something that Protestants supported as well. But it's interesting, God is up front at the preamble of our Constitution. you notice beneath that, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth. So you notice that Australia is one indissoluble federal commonwealth. We've agreed, so it's a product of an agreement. It's a very Australian way of approaching something. We sort of shake hands and we agree on it. The idea of unity, we've united in a union. A union that is one indissoluble federal commonwealth. So it's one country. It's indissoluble. Again, if you spoke English in the 19th century, one large event that you were very well aware of was the American Civil War. So it was made clear at the very beginning that the Australian Commonwealth would never, ever be able to be dissolved. Okay? So there's nothing in the Constitution that allows for the dissolution of the Australian Federation. Okay? But... If you're worried about it being an overwhelming federal government, relax, it is a federal commonwealth. 
So it is a federation. Okay. Under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and under the constitution hereby established. So you'll notice we come together, we form this one new, this new country and there are two, what I call the two unders. Under the crown and under the constitution. And you'll notice the crown comes first. The crown predates the constitution. It's an ancient institution that our constitution brings into it to enable certain things to happen. So it's very important to note that, that Australia is obviously a federation. Um, it obviously is something where people have agreed to unite. But particularly, the, mon the monarchy plays a big role in our constitution. It does not in our day-to-day -day life, but it does in the constitution. So that's just something to bear in mind. Um, I often like to relate this story. Uh, the US president, uh, the retired US president, Theodore Roosevelt, he leaves office uh, and he goes on a tour of the world. And he ends up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire where he meets the Emperor Franz Joseph. And he asks the Emperor Franz Joseph, yeah, President Roosevelt comes from a vigorous republic, which overthrew its ties to the monarchy. And so he meets the emperor and he says, you know, what is it basically that you do all day? To which Emperor Franz Joseph, his mentor, have replied, I protect my people from their politicians. And so that is very much the idea of what the crown is there to do. So if you look at the constitution itself, you'll see it's divided into chapters and they all do different things in the constitution. Unsurprisingly, the parliament is chapter one. It's the engine room of much of what is to happen in the constitutional order. We elect it, we vote for it, uh, we hold it to account. So naturally, the parliament would be in chapter one. It's the lawmaking body. Chapter two is the crown and the executive. Okay? It's important, but obviously it's not something we necessarily elect. And that provides for the executive power of the Commonwealth being vested in the crown. And, in the, and it's exercised by the governor general on the advice of the ministers that are appointed under that chapter. Okay, so chapter three is the, uh, where the courts are. So that's something I have to grapple with on a pretty much day-to-day -day basis and so on. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice is interesting because it is proposed to put into our constitution a new chapter nine. So that means the voice is not a small thing. The voice is a large thing because we have not added a chapter to the constitution since the constitution began on the 1st of January 901. So it is, whatever your views on the voice for against, it is a big deal. Okay, so it is adding a new chapter. And it's adding a new chapter to a constitution that has a specific way of functioning. So I mentioned before about the Crown. Um, there, are certain, there are certain what I call you know, sort of, sort of, the, sort of the, the tools with which the Governor-General maintains the constitution. It's very important to note that we, we, we don't vote for... We obviously don't vote for a monarch. We do not vote for the Governor-General. The Governor-General, on a day-to-day -day basis, is the person whose job it is to keep the constitutional show on the road. And the way that is guaranteed is the Governor-General has certain tools in the Constitution which, in an extreme case, he or she can use to write the constitutional ship. So, for instance, under Section 5 of the Constitution, the Governor-General can, on their own motion, so they do not need anyone's authority to do this, they can, if they wish to do so, prorogue the Parliament, which is basically suspend it, stop it from sitting, and, if necessary, they can dissolve the House. Okay, so they can dissolve the House. So that is a power the Governor General has over the Parliament. Okay, so they can stop the Parliament from sitting and they can force the House, for instance, to go off to fresh elections. Senators have six-year terms they are elected to and they simply elapse of their own time. Whereas the Parliament's terms, sorry, the House's terms just dissolve. Sorry, the House's terms end on the dissolution. So certainly as a member of the House, you have much less uh, job security. Um, on the whole, unless there is a double dissolution, in which case everyone goes off to the races. Um, 
Under Section 64, there is power in the Governor-General also to get rid of ministers. And that is also a power that the Governor-General does not need anyone's permission to use, as Mr Whitlam found out. Uh, the Governor-General can, at any time if they wish to do so, dismiss a Prime Minister or ministers if they are of the mind that the constitutional circumstances demand it. And the reason why the Governor-General has these powers, as I was trying to say before, is that under Section 61 of the Constitution, the Governor-General, as the monarch's representative, is charged with the execution and maintenance of the Constitution. So the Crown's job is to protect the Constitution. And within that, the Governor-General in Section 61 has that power, that responsibility to execute and maintain the Constitution, particularly as regards the Parliament in Chapter 1 and the Ministry in Chapter 2. The voice is different. The voice will be in Chapter 9. And so the voice is kind of outside of the usual order of things in the way our constitution functions. That is not to say the voice is a bad idea, it's just that it is not something that our constitution necessarily contemplated. It's something that is just different. So, so again, there is just an issue around how a new chapter operates in the constitution in circumstances where it has no necessary fit into either the Parliament or the Executive or indeed the Courts. So it is in its own new chapter. Um, the voice itself, as I've set out in the documents beforehand, before you, um, the voice itself is contained in, section one, in a section 129. So at the moment, the Constitution ends at section 128. That's the provision that deals with referenda. The voice would go into chapter 9, of which chapter 9 would include a new section 129. Um, section 129 is broken up into three uh, Roman paragraphs and above it is what's called a chapeau or, or effectively say like a top hat for lack of a better word. It's a phrase that introduces these things. And so it says, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia. Okay, I think, think that is unobjectionable to most people. There shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Okay. So that is the constitutional words saying there will be a body. Okay, so this is something that neither the parliament nor the executive government nor even the governor general can either abolish or dissolve. Does everyone follow me so far? So it has a constitutional existence that the parliament has and that the high court has. It is constitutionally entrenched. Okay, so the only way to take something out is to have another referenda to remove it. So it is constitutionally entrenched. Um, in Roman 2, it says... The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Okay, the idea of making representations in and of itself is not, is not in my view, necessarily controversial. People make representations to government all the time. So every day, there are vast armies of lobbyists that are in Parliament House making representations to parliamentarians and to the Executive Government on issues of concern. I, I'm not, I don't think that is, the, that is the major problem. What is interesting is that is an entrenched wording, that idea of you have a constitutionally entrenched power to make representations. What that necessarily means for the rest of the Constitution is something that at the moment is unknown, but will ultimately be decided by the High Court. Parliament will not be able to qualify this. Constitutional language is interpreted by the High Court. It is not something that Parliament can change. Okay, so these are constitutional words that the Parliament will have to decide what they mean. 
Um, some people have a problem with the idea of the voice being able to make representations to the executive government. I am less troubled by that than others. I think that's, that's fine. My problem is the idea of where, what particularly is the representations... I'll start again. When is the representation made in circumstances where it would be valid and would there be situations where uh, someone could say, we never had a chance to make a properly informed representation or our representation was disregarded in circumstances where that would entitle you to try and stop some normal functioning of government from happening. That is something that does concern me. Um, <clears throat> but not, not necessarily... Not necessarily as much as what I will get to when I get to Roman III. Um, but what does concern me also is that the subject matter in which you can make representations is on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples. It's very hard to think of anything that the federal government does, or the federal parliament does, that would not necessarily be a matter relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples are Australian citizens. What the government does affects them as much as anyone else. So... Insofar as the voice would be a body which would have a broad charter to have views on things that actually are not necessarily directly relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders but is merely relating to, I think that is a low bar. That is something that does concern me. Um, but what concerns me probably most is in Roman 3. It says, The Parliament shall, subject to this constitution have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. The problem in that, in that, uh, that paragraph is the phrase subject to this constitution because the parliament's power to make laws is subject to everything else that is in the constitution. What is else in the constitution? Roman 2 is what else is in the constitution. So the power of the parliament to make laws with respect to the voice is subject to the voice's power to make representations. That is a difficult upending of the normal way that our constitution works. Normally, for a body such as this, the parliament would have power to make representations. So, start again. Normally, for a body like this, the parliament would have a, power, a general power to make laws with regard to it. It would not have a power to make laws to it that is subject to something else, particularly that body's power otherwise entrenched. That is, I think, the key problem that a lot of people have. Um, and so I think there are issues with the voice and the way this, this design has been chosen that are almost unnecessary. I, I've never understood how this model was landed on as the model to go with. It's my understanding is there were between 14 or 17 different models for the voice. Somehow this was the one chosen. I've never had a good explanation as to why because it has problems in it. Um, I, I will say... Um, I will say, though, that's not necessarily an argument, a final argument against the voice. It's just that these are risks that this model has. Um, I set out in my uh, document for you about ultimately what the voice is will depend upon what four or seven High Court justices at any one time think. That is the brutal reality of it. Once you constitutionalise something, so once you put, put a matter into the Constitution, it then becomes a matter for the High Court to effectively rule on. And that will be a matter for four of the seven justices to agree what words mean. We in Australia have been blessed that our High Court has not played a large role in our society. Our High Court has played a very, very mature and orthodox role. 
where judges have interpreted the Constitution according to its plain and ordinary meaning. Our High Court has resisted the temptation that has consumed particularly American courts to play around with judicial language and invent things that are not there in the text. So our High Court has, I think, done a superb job on the whole of being a final court for our federation and for our polity. I think the High Court's done a great job. Can I also say, as a former judge's associate in the High Court, and particularly being aware of the Supreme Court of the United States experience, there is something quite liberating about the fact that when you are with what you would call your judge, you did not need a phalanx of security because someone might want to shoot them, which is not unknown in the American context. So the voice would be a, would be a source for our courts of definitely litigation, trying to invite them into playing a bigger role. But also the wording would require them to accept that a bigger role may be necessary for the voice. After all, it's a constitutionalised matter. If the voice goes into the constitution, it is going to have to be given its broad operation because that is what the words provide for. Um, so that, that's a concern I have. And uh, as I said in, in my notes, I think a new chapter nine in the Constitution would require the High Court to be ready to grant relief to the voice where the voice believed it had been precluded from exercising its constitutionally entrenched right to make representations or where it felt its representations had been ignored. Okay, that is something which I'm not sure people are thinking about, certainly in the process of the parliamentary committee where that was ignored. The other thing is... Uh, the idea, as I said before, of matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, that is a very broad subject matter. That is not a narrow subject matter. That could be conceivably anything. So you could have a narrow a body with a narrow mandate, such as the voice would be, having potentially a broad say on various matters that are properly the, the responsibility of the parliament that we all elect, that we all share in. So uh, that is a concern I have. I point out that insofar as I am critical of the model, I did propose a, a preferred model, and I sent this to the parliamentary committee. Uh, for all the good I did, my criticisms came up in the debate, but I was not invited to come and speak. Um, it was disappointing to me because I obviously put a lot of work into it, uh, but it was a relief that I at least didn't have to go to Canberra. So... <laughs> But you'll notice in, in my model, I, I would put the voice in Chapter 2. I think the logical place to put a, an advisory body, particularly an entrenched advisory body, is to put it in the executive government, which is in Chapter 2 of the Constitution, and it would sit there as an executive body under the Crown. Um, that would make a lot of sense for a number of reasons, not just for the Constitution, but, tradition, but traditionally and historically, the Crown has a special duty towards Indigenous peoples. The Crown has what's called a duty of honour, in relation to Indigenous people, certainly that was the case in Canada. Australia is very much, in some respects, the odd one out. Um, I, I see the voice... I, I, I'm personally disposed to a voice. I, I've, I've always supported a voice ever since I seriously thought about it. And I think there is a very good argument for the voice insofar as, if I can just be brutally honest, everything else that has been tried has not worked. And insofar as the voice may work, or at least it would involve people who would, who would bear responsibility for helping to improve the closing of the gap, improving the often dismal results in Aboriginal health and education and families. Insofar as that could be achieved, I, I am for a voice. 
I, I'm certainly for anything that could make things better. And I have, but at the same token, I'm old enough to remember when we had the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island, Island Commission ATSIC, which was born of similarly noble intentions and was ended up, ended up being abolished by the parliament in 2004-05 because of just entrenched corruption, nepotism and insiderism. So I am aware of uh, that you know, good intentions obviously pave the road to hell, but at the same time, I'm also aware that this could be something that improves it. So I, I have no fixed view. I was saying to uh, Dr Morrissey that I... I know it's going to sound slightly sentimental, but I... I would find it very. I will find it very, very hard to vote no. I find, I find it very hard. The treatment of Indigenous peoples is sort of like our original sin. It's something that we as Australians did poorly on. We're, Australia is a great country. I, I'm privileged in the work I do on the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. I hear, you know, I hear many things, but I hear appeals from people against decisions of government to refuse them, say, a protection visa to live in Australia because they fear being sent back to where they've come from. Where they have come from is often a terrible place. And it is quite humbling as an Australian, particularly as an Australian in that capacity representing the Australian government, to hear people speak about Australia in terms that I find too few Australians do. They talk about what blessings we have in this country and the, the rule of law, the, the freedoms we have, the basic surety that uh, of... The, most of the time, you're going to be treated fairly. And that is something that's a humbling experience. So there's a, there's a lot of good about our country that we can be extremely proud of. How we treated our Indigenous people is just one of those chapters where I think it's, for lack of a better word, it is our original sin. And it is something that we have to remediate and do better on. So I just find it hard. And I know this, none of this is a constitutional argument. This is really an emotional argument. But, but it's an argument about the sort of country we are and the country we want to become. So we're sort of left as we approach the referendum, unless things change, where people are being asked to either vote for a model which has some quite obvious flaws or vote against uh, their Indigenous brothers and sisters, which I think is an awful choice. I think it's a choice that no parliament should ever put before its people. Uh, I think the model should be improved to make it as, as uh, proofed as any model can be proofed against... Uh, constitutional adventurism and destabilising of the constitutional model. But at the same time, I personally find it very, very hard to contemplate voting no, because, as I said, I find we're so burdened by that history, it is just something we did not attend to. And I think it's something that will be good for the country if we can do something positive for. Whether this is something... Whether, whether this model is that something is a matter every Australian will have to come to decide with when they vote. Um, I guess what I would say is that you're all young people, a number of you may be casting either your first vote or your second vote when it comes to the referendum. And that, that will be your matter as a young citizen to decide how you cast that vote. All I would say is uh, cast an informed vote with a clear conscience. I would ask you to bear in mind that it is constitution that, will be, that we, we're being amended. So it's about an amendment to the constitution. It will involve issues of what serves the common good and also what serves well the, the country that we all share together as Australians. Um, I think as a positive, I think almost everyone agrees that we have to have some form of Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. It's a, that is something that I think we would all agree on. I think there are 
good people on both yes and no cases who will put a respectable case for each. Um, I think there is a good argument for why the voice should be legislated and not constitutionalised. I also think there is a respectable argument for why you should vote yes and risk it to achieve the greater good. As I said, having a body that will be responsible for improving outcomes. So there are arguments on both of those. I think one thing I would impress upon you, because you're all very, very intelligent young people, you're all studying uh, the classics, philosophy, uh, rhetoric, argument. I'm sure a number of you will go on to be great lawyers. Um, uh, if I can wish that upon you without seeming cruel. Um, <laughs> but a number of you will go into this, and my one hope is if you do, or if you go into media or something, something like that, Please, we need desperately to improve the level of not just constitutional literacy, but sort of literacy about how things work in, for real in our society. This is something I think our media does a poor job of explaining. And, and as I said before, the Constitution is straightforward. It's in plain English, but it is not simple. And there's a great risk whenever we try to oversimplify things. These are complex things um, that can be understood in a straightforward way, but they are complex. And they need to be understood as such. Uh, my only hope is that in the brief time I've spoken to you, that the, I've got across the idea that the Australian Constitution and the constitutional order it creates is very good. It works very well. We have had 122 years of uh, ongoing constitutional existence and, and it seems to be going quite well. Uh, and that is something I would never want to see destabilised. Um, in your materials, I always like to include this as a form as an ending to any constitutional material. There's, there's an image I, I include in that of, it's very interesting, it's, it's something I think we as Australians don't give ourselves enough credit for. Uh, it's an image of a Bible, and it's the Bible on which the Catholic Prime Minister Joseph Lyons was sworn in on when he became Prime Minister during the Depression. So during the Depression, the Depression hits Australia very, very hard in the early 1930s. Obviously, it hits other countries very hard, and other countries have... You know, spasms that become murderous spasms. The like. In Australia, we don't. We endure the depression almost stoically. And we have elections and we keep our free society going. And at the, at the beginning of the end of the worst part, there is an election and the new Catholic Prime Minister of Australia, Joseph Lyons, takes office. He is sworn in by the Governor-General of the day, Sir, Alf Sir Isaac Isaacs. Sir Isaac Isaacs was Jewish. He was the first Australian Governor-General and he was Jewish. And he's sworn in on a Protestant Bible. And there's something very Australian, something, something I think very, very impressive about the fact that as other countries are all falling apart, you know, you're a year away from Hitler taking power in Germany. Obviously, the Soviets are murdering everyone. Um, in Australia, you have, in the pits of the Depression, in a heavily Protestant Australia, you have the Catholic Prime Minister sworn in by the Jewish Governor-General on a Protestant Bible. Yeah, you have something very well worth holding on to here in this country. Now, how you go on to vote in the voice uh, referendum if and when it occurs is a matter for you. I hope this has been informative. I hope whether you're a yes or a no, um, you conduct the debate in a way that reflects well on you because as I always say to people, you always have a choice in how you conduct yourself. And hopefully at the end of it, we still have a country that we can all belong to because my great fear is that, particularly if the referendum fails, is that it's a terrible model, it's put to a vote, the referendum fails, and we have a massive wound to the country that we all share. 
And I think that is something we should all try and avoid. And um, my only other appeal is if any of you are thinking about going into politics, we desperately need as many good, publicly spirited people as we can to go into politics. Yes, I realise it's unenviable, and as I said yesterday, I realise it involves going to Canberra. But uh, we live in a time when I think we have a dearth of, of publicly spirited people doing the right thing, and to the extent I can ever encourage a group of people to be part of a change that will improve things, or at least remediate the damage being done, I like to make it. So hopefully, if some of you have a political bent in you, you will grab it with both hands and, and, and try and make a vocation of it. Um, one of my, I have many very good friends, but one of my good friends who I was a judge's associate with was, uh, was and is uh, Julian Lisa, who's the member for Broward. And Julian, Julian, really the only particularly principled person I can see in the entire debate, he basically blew up his political career to take a principled position in favour of the voice. Um, it will do him perhaps no favours politically, but I remember Julian said he wanted to do something that would always make his children proud of him. And I think it's very impressive that, that someone can have that view of I'm really not concerned about what today thinks of me, I, I'm concerned about the legacy that I leave and the inheritance I leave for others, which are things I think all of us can, can take with us. Um, Julian, before he went to politics, was at uh, Australian Catholic University. And uh, I've always said to Julian that um, while Julian's Jewish, I said, you, if it's any consolation, you'd make very good Catholic. And I said, remember, all the first Catholics were Jewish. And, um, and, <laughs> and, and we often had this banner, but I've just admired Julian so much in what he's done. And I just wish we had more of Julian and, um, and people like that who are willing to risk things for the greater good and, as I said, for the country that we all share. So um, I hope that was helpful and I hope that was informative. And regardless of what happens, I hope this is an experience which in your young formative lives you will learn from and that you will all go on and hopefully repair and help build, help repair some of the damage that will inevitably be done this year, but help build a country that we're all proud to call our own. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Campion College podcast. For more information on our courses, upcoming events, and ways you can financially support Campion College, visit campion.edu.au.